With the world becoming more connected, it is perhaps more important than ever to consider the role of language in our daily lives. From how it shapes who we can communicate with to how it shapes the way we see the world, language isn't always something we think a lot about, but we should. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. I'm joined today by Merrick Kahn, science writer and author of numerous books, including Four Words for Friend, Why Using More Than One Language Matters Now More Than Ever. Merrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. What is your own experience with language? You write a little bit about this in the book, um, but you sort of have a personal investment in language. In a sense, I've been preparing to to write this book all, all my life. It's it's a subject that's been on my mind all my life, not because I'm fluent in more than one language, but precisely because I'm not. <laughs> we are now speaking in my my second language, and uh, if. If you were a fluent Polish speaker, I wouldn't be able to hold this conversation with, with you because my first language never quite uh, uh, never quite set and, and has deteriorated over the years. And that's kind of bothered me. Well, it's bothered me rather a lot. And some years ago, I decided that it was time to do something about it. That then engaged with, with something else that I was very concerned about, the, the increasing sense of... Uh, antagonism and uh, um, fear of otherness and reflexive hostility that, that one, one, one detected in, in so many quarters around the world. It seemed to me that it would make sense to bring those two preoccupations together and to look at language, not only, about, not only how one um, manages having more than one language in one's own mind, but also how languages can work together productively in, in larger communities and societies so that they're illuminating each other rather than competing with each other. And what are the benefits to knowing a second language or, or multiple languages even, um, aside from the obvious of knowing the language itself, what are the benefits to the person who, who can speak more than one language? There are many possible benefits. Um, on the, there's a big scientific debate about the possible cognitive benefits of, of having more than one language in, in your brain. That's a, a particular issue. It's controversial, but there's lots and lots of interesting stuff around there. The basic idea is that if you have more than one language installed, so to speak, both, uh, each, each language is, is continuously active. And so the executive part of your brain, the, the part that says, okay, pay attention to this, and not that, activate this, not that, and um, switch between from this to that. Um, those executive systems are strengthened by the exercise of continually selecting between languages. So it's, it's, uh, it's the, the analogy is, 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 uh, is obvious. It's like physical exercise. You, you, you use muscles, they, they grow stronger and, and, and fitter. You use this executive system um, to switch continually between languages and your executive functions grow stronger. And the idea is that over a lifetime, you build up reserves and that can actually help you later in life uh, and it can perhaps delay the onset of dementia. A number of studies have found that it'll delay dementia by by several years, four or five years perhaps. Other studies haven't found that and so uh, this this is a a difficult area. Nonetheless, there's lots and lots of stuff around the science that suggests in different kinds of ways, learning, having more than one language can 
bring mental benefits. Uh, other examples are children, for example, have been found to to be better at understanding the principles of conversation um, that, than if they have if they have two languages than if they have one. They've also been found to to realise that that uh, other people can't necessarily see the same as you see. In other words, they're better able to take people's perspectives. So there's a whole lot of, lot of suggestive evidence uh, that that points towards languages having having more than one language being a really really productive and beneficial um a, a set of uh, of assets rather than uh handicaps or, or or liabilities and are the benefits there do you do you need to be fluent in the language or is just the act of learning the language itself the benefit i suspect that for for children they those are the kind of benefits that that uh you see when you do experiments and find and studies and see whether they're better at understanding the rules of conversation. Um, those probably come from the insights that 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 that, that they're forced up against. In other words, <laughs> they're learning that they have to uh, work in two modes. They have to pay closer attention to to the people who are speaking to them and they're speaking to, and so on. The longer term benefits. Um, would prob- probably come with with uh, probably require continued use, just as um, physical benefits from exercise need to be uh, depend on continued use. So it's no good working out and and uh, and uh, rowing and playing sport when you're uh, when you're at uh, college age, and then letting yourself <laughs> <laughs> become a sedentary and expecting to enjoy the benefits of old age. Um, probably the same sort of principle applies with uh, whatever cognitive benefits people may enjoy in, in later life. And with that in mind, um, is there a, a best time to learn a second language? I mean, you often hear you should learn it when you're young, when you're learning your first language. But if you've missed that opportunity, which I'm sure a lot of people listening who may be thinking about this have, um, is, is, there, is it okay to learn it when you're older or is it something you should do when you're a kid? If you haven't learned one when, when you're a kid, absolutely go for it when you're older. It won't be so easy, but as uh, as the cognitive neuroscientist uh, Thomas Bach, who's a great advocate for for multilingualism and bilingualism, um, po- uh, points out, that's it. That's exactly the point. You get the benefit precisely because it's harder in later life, and you have to put more effort into it. But more generally, and speaking personally. Um, Taking a broader view of of the benefits of bilingualism rather than this this specific set of uh, of uh, propositions that that scientists have developed, I think the earlier the better. Um, I, I I think it's the for me the the most important things are are having early having an early entry into a particular culture or, or group of cultures, being feeling at home in in a language and the culture that goes with it. And also I think growing up with the, with the feeling that, that languages are open to you and you are open to them. Uh, an awful lot of English speaking monoglots um, uh, almost can't believe that, that uh, 
that 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 it's that it's uh, possible to speak other languages. <laughs> they, they look around the world at all these people speaking two, three, maybe even more languages, and they can't actually believe that this is happening <laughs> at, at a fairly deep level. So I think uh, I think by by and large, the earlier the better. And um, one particular reason for for, for that um, returning to the silence is this uh, this um, process of 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 embedding. Um, the uh, uh, scientist Monica Schmidt, who's based in, in is, uh, from Germany, but uh, based now in in in, in Britain, um, she explains it that you can get to say five or six the, the 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 ages at which kids typically start school, and you may speak a, a language pretty well, but two things: one is that you probably haven't finished learning it in the sense uh, that, that modern, modern education systems require and perhaps haven't actually mastered an awful lot of the, um, the, the basic grammar in, a, in an informal sense. So it's not quite finished. And if you think about how much time is devoted in, in school curricula to, to learning the dominant language, in other words, to learning English in, in the United States or, or in, in the United Kingdom, um, that's a reminder of just how much formal instruction is considered necessary. Now the other thing is is that what you have picked up isn't set in stone. It seems as though it can be erased over the subsequent period of, of childhood. So you get to school age, you know, you you can you can appear to be entirely fluent in in, in a language, as as I believe that I was uh, when I when I hit the school system. Of, um, I was fluent in both uh, Polish and English, but it got over it, it gets overwritten. Um, it's not set in stone, to use a more old-fashioned metaphor. Um, it can be erased. If you get to your teens, it's probably okay. So start earlier, you get more practice in, the better chances you have, uh, better your chances of, 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 of keeping it in later life. And for you with Polish, was it a matter of not using it a lot and that's what caused you to lose it, or was it something else? Well, it was it was a mixture of things, and, and um, although it was a very long time ago, I can still remember that feeling. Wham! You go to school, you know, you realise that that uh, everybody else is speaking a, a, a different language all the time, and you know, for for a child, uh, that that's a very 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 powerful lesson. You know, you have to fit in. Um, you know, you have to make your way in the world. You. Have to make friends, and so the the pressure to to adopt the dominant language is really really strong, and you have to have a, a strong counter an offsetting pressure to maintain the the, the other language, the, the the socially weaker language. But with me, it's, it was also um, yeah lack of use, um, and well, in my family. Uh, um, um, Although uh, the, the family language was, in, in fact, uh, uh, Polish until some way into my childhood, um, it was my father who was the native Polish speaker, and uh, and well, he he had a, a stroke and was unable to say anything back to me after that point. And but I think more broadly, it's to do with having people to talk to that you uh, and having things to talk about. And I'm from a generation where in which an awful lot of us were culturally shall we say rather divergent from from our parents <laughs> um 
and uh, and uh, we we had this uh, there's an expression current at the time generation gap. Now nowadays we just number generations by 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 letters and and, and take it from there. But uh, <laughs> we uh, in those days there was a gap, and believe me, it was quite a deep and and. Uh, uh, gap that was quite difficult and, and sometimes painful and fraught to, to cross. Um, so, you know, if you don't didn't like me, you didn't end up sharing the dominant culture of the, the community that that uh, um, that the language is is embedded in. You end up with very few people to talk to. That changed for me in two thousand and four, when um, uh, Poland joined the European Union, and Britain allowed free movement of, of migrants uh, um, uh, in, into, in, in, into this country. And suddenly, oh, <laughs> to, to the surprise of an awful lot of, uh, of Britons, there were an awful lot of people um, in, in Pol- uh, who spoke Polish in, in this country. And it was easier to find people with whom I shared cultural interests and outlooks and so on. And so there was stuff to talk about. That's absolutely vital. For parents, what are what are some things you can do? Is it a matter of having a, one parent who can speak the language uh, fluently? Is it finding these you know groups of people to hang out with where they can speak in a in a second language? Are there other tricks to be done? One thing that that comes up a lot is this idea of one person, one sorry, one parent, one language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the idea behind this seems to be that. Uh, concern that children are going to be confused by being exposed to more than one language and to keep things a bit simpler um, maybe it's better if one parent speaks one and and uh, the other parent speaks speaks another the findings on that are, are positive but they don't necessarily suggest that that it's it's always the the, the most effective way of 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 uh, of transmitting a, a, a language to, to children, um, it may be that that if both parents speak both languages and if they both speak both languages well, that could that can work actually better. Um, one thing that that perhaps um, should be avoided is is trying to speak the dominant language if you don't speak it terribly well yourself. So for for migrants who are are trying to um, work out and develop their their places in in, in a society, um, they may feel that it's very important for for their children to uh, acquire the dominant language as quickly as possible. Which is broadly speaking true, but but they themselves may not be the best teachers, and actually they may be passing on errors to to their children, which uh, which are uh, the, the real source of confusion. Because you know, actually, in a society with a dominant language, the child is always going to pick it up. What <laughs> right. we're all about is the heritage language. And how does how does language acquisition work? What is happening? Uh to someone who is learning a language? You're processing a whole load of really um, complicated inputs. You have, as a baby, um, certain advantages. It does seem as though as though your circuits are, are attuned to the, the sounds of language. Uh, you very rapidly in your first year um, winnow out 
sounds that aren't part of, of the language that you're hearing around you or the languages you're hearing around you, which is great for, um, for homing in on, on, on the language of your community, but it does leave you with a bit of a disadvantage if you're trying to, to learn a, a language later in life because um, your sound set will not will, will only be a bit of an approximation and it's really difficult to, to uh, uh, acquire a native-like uh, accent learning a language later in life. Personally, I don't think that matters for a number of reasons. Uh, I think it's actually rather good to be sending a single signal uh, that tells people gives people a, a kind of rich idea of, of, of who you are and where you're from, assuming that your listeners bear the appropriate goodwill towards you. <laughs> well, that, that's really important. I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the idea of native accents is, uh, native-like accents is very, very loaded um, because it is, it's the old biblical shibboleth. It's, 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 the, it's the, 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 the us and them identification signal. It's really great if people are open towards people with slightly uh, diverse and complicated background. It's not so good if they're looking, they're on the lookout for a, a foreign accent um, in order to to exclude people from from their community and their and, and their consideration. So, so for kids, it's you know they're 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 set up for, to 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 learn languages. It seems as though they may have some neural predis cognitive predispositions to, to learn it and what they certainly have is a very very favorable environment hopefully if they're in a in a in a healthy functional um, setting and they're getting enough care they're hearing lots of stuff and people are kind of concentrating on, on helping them along and what impact does the language we speak um, have on how we interpret the world there was a film uh, a couple of years back, Arrival, which was obviously a very extreme example of this where aliens came and they were speaking a different language and through learning this language, um, the way that the person studying the language looked at the world changed very drastically. Um, but in in real life, before aliens, what, what sort of impact does this have? Um, your language, your first or your second language or third or however many, have on the way you you sort of interpret the world? Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Arrival because uh, Arrival was almost like a, a, a parody of what's uh, known as the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is that language transforms thought. And, okay, the film's been around a few years, so I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. To say. <laughs> spoiler <laughs> so, alert, if, in case you haven't spoiler seen it. Alert. Okay, spoiler alert. But uh, sh let's just say that... that um, uh, that that takes the hypothesis so f to, to the to the extreme in which uh, in which language actually actually changes reality. Not it doesn't just change how you perceive reality. Mm -hmm. At least um, to the extent that I was able to follow the plot, that's what it seemed to be doing. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, the, the the idea uh, is that language can change the way that we perceive the world, and there are stronger and weaker versions of this. And the, the, the strongest version uh, is a kind of uh, um, s slightly uh, stylized or even caricatured version of it is 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 this idea that uh, that uh, different cultures can perceive time in very very different ways. This was um, uh, a popular uh, a 
a widely popularized idea in, in uh, emerging from from the Sapir Wharf way of thinking. Now, the it's it's very easy to to debunk these strong versions of the hypothesis, but I think that one is throwing the baby at, uh, um, out with the bathwater there because if one stops to think about it, of course, language change uh, affects thought. Anybody who works with with words as a writer or a speaker, or whatever, will spend hours and hours and hours reflecting upon the different ways in which the choice of a particular word can affect the meaning of what they're saying and the, the and the impact of of, of their of their message. So clearly, um, somewhere between those, we have something interesting going on. Now, a favourite topic uh, um, for linguists uh, and, and psychologists uh, thinking about the question of language and thought is, is colour perception. So different languages, different cultures divide the colour spectrum up in, in different ways. Now, this doesn't mean to say that, that they're actually see, seeing different colours because they have different words for, for, for different colours or they don't have the same number of words for different colours and so on. But it does seem as, as though perceptions can be fine-tuned fine to a certain extent by the labelling of colours. Um, an, an example is, that, uh, is the way that uh, Russian speakers who divide the range of the spectrum that English speakers just refer to as blue into two different forms, uh, dark blue and, and, and light blue. And they seem to react more quickly when they're forced to make choices uh, which depend on seeing the difference between something that counts as dark blue or something that comes in the, the light blue category. These minor perceptual changes, these minor cognitive changes, I think are perhaps uh, are interesting, but, but to me the, the really uh, urgent questions are about relationships. It's not so much how we see the world as such, but how we relate to each other. And the really obvious example is uh, which I encounter myself all the time and is a constant source of anxiety for me in 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 Polish is uh, the distinction between formal and informal modes of address. Now in many languages there are two of these so uh, in French you have tu and vous. Um, in, in a number of European languages you, you have uh, uh, analogies for that. In Polish you actually imitate the third person so you you speak as though you're addressing somebody in, in, in the third person in the manner of uh, an old-fashioned English butler. Will <laughs> Sir be staying for dinner, dinner tonight? <laughs> um, and uh, other languages, uh, you can have even more degrees of formality. Now, the dis these distinctions are, are, are really quite important and they don't translate. So the correct uh, uh, literary translation or, or computer translation or whatever of of uh, of these plural, uh, these 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 forms, it, to an English speaker would be you. You lose very very important information about your interlocutor uh, if you if you don't have that distinction any 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 longer. Um, are they treating you as a social equal? Are they being rude to you? Are they being friendly to you? Are they being um, vaguely distant? All these things are, 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 can be vital in an interaction, and are structured by. By, uh, by 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 the mode of address. Another um, another to me very striking example is is the the uh, the way that Russian 
categorizes word, words for friend, which is which uh, um, to which the title of, the, of my book, Four Words for Friend, refers. So, whereas an English speaker has the option of of uh, describing somebody as a dear friend or um, a, a good friend or not a very close friend but an acquaintance, um, Russian demands that they immediately put put somebody into a category of being a of they can be a very very close friend almost like a relative um they can be a, if they're female they can be close but slightly further away then you've got your your general friend grade and then you have a uh, word for an acquaintance which trans although it translates as acquaintance it's kind of closer than 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 than, than, a, than the, the same term it is in english if, if we're English speakers, we only call people acquaintances if we're trying to distance ourselves from them. Um, in, in other languages, it's uh, it's um, it's it can be more a matter of drawing one towards oneself. So, so what this does is, firstly, it, uh, it places this obligation to, um, upon one, but it also enriches social information. So one immediately finds that in a course of a confirmation, uh, conversation, information about social networks. So so-and-so is a close friend of so-and-so's, uh, maybe a, a medium-grade uh, friend of, of, of uh, a third, another party's, an acquaintance of a fourth, and so on and so forth. You build up a much richer uh, richer net. And it's a very, very good illustration of what of the, uh, the, uh, the principle that uh, languages differ not in what they enable one to say, but in what they oblige one to say. So from your own personal experience and, and from some of the science and, and other things, um, do you have any advice to people who are looking to start learning a new language or continue learning a new language um, or to people who have children who are learning a new language? Well, that that covers such a range of of different experiences and situations that uh, um, there probably has to be diff different uh, advice uh, for different people at, at different times of life. Okay, so you need incentives above all. If you're learning later in life, you have lots and lots of priorities. If you're if you're in your cradle, so to speak, uh, or indeed literally in your cradle, language is is one of your top priorities. Um, and it'll be brought to you if, if if all is well in your 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 among your your caregivers. If you're learning late in life, you um, I think above all need people to talk to and things to talk about. This is my as I mentioned earlier. This is this is my experience. So and you need. I think you need people who are sympathetic. You need people who are prepared to put up with your mistakes and who welcome your efforts to speak, uh, to, to speak their language. Those are not always present. Uh, um, the uh, linguist Maria Polinski, who, uh, who uh, uh, brought her experience of, of language from Russia to, to the United States is very funny and, uh, and sharp about, about, uh, how uh, how Russian speakers uh, uh, object to so-called heritage speakers, people with a, a, an incomplete and erratic grasp of the language of the Russian language, murdering the language of Pushkin. <laughs> <laughs> 
that really doesn't help. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I suppose what the, what the speaker needs to, or the learner needs to bring to it is a certain, is a certain kind of toughness. You just have to say, okay, I know what I sound like. I know that every other word is going to be grammatically incorrect if I'm on a bad run, but I just have to start and I just thereafter have to keep going. So those are my, that's my advice for, for, um, for later learners and for, for people, parents bringing up children in more than one language and in more than one, with access to more than one language. Um, my advice is, Please, 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 please um, remember that the, the minority language is so much weaker than the dominant one in, in societies such as those of, of the United States or the United Kingdom. That's the one that you really need to, to look after and nurture. And please, you know, to the wider community, please try and bring those, those children along with you. And... I think that is that there, there are other um, there are other factors that come into play which may be significant. One of those is technology. So um, hopefully now and in the future, I have to say that, that the statistics don't support this as far as Spanish speakers in the United States go. Not yet, but hopefully in the future, as channels of communication become much wider and and and, and richer and more immediate. Uh, across across language boundaries, people will gain incentives from actually enjoying exposure to to a culture by which I'm talking about music that's in different languages from from that the dominant culture, uh, films, soap opera, soap operas, and so on. Stuff that that people positively enjoy rather than feeling that they they ought to be to be paying attention to. Those those sorts of things are. Uh, are also good. For me, the really important thing is to appreciate what even a small amount of, 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 of a grasp on a language enables you to do. So even if you can only speak a little of a language, even if you can only speak it uh, ungrammatically and in a limited fashion, that opens opens up so much to, to, to you. And I think it's vitally important to to, to regard those to, the, to regard those very, very partial and incomplete language skills as assets rather than as sources of shame or embarrassment. All right. Well, the book is Four Words for Friend, Why Using More Than One Language Matters Now More Than Ever. Merrick, thank you for coming on. Thank you very much indeed. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.